Well, once again, I am just happy to be with you. And as we begin this evening, I want to ask you, I know you all have a context that you're coming here in tonight. You have a week that you've gone through. You have things on your mind, things that are vying for your attention. I want to ask you to forget about all of that this evening. Put all of that on hold. Put all of that into the hands of God for just one hour. Can you do that? Can you trust him to take care of your life for just one hour and just pause and just come right here with me for just just a moment? As we do that, I want to ask you, have you ever in your life found yourself at a place where somewhere deep inside of you, you couldn't put your finger on it, but somewhere deep inside of you there was this insatiable hunger or desire for something greater than what you are presently experiencing. Have you ever been there? This longing for something more. Is there anyone who would go so far as to say that this has been a continual encounter that you've had in life? That you've found yourself more than once coming to a place where you longed for something more. Anyone here? Are there places, locations, have you noticed, where those feelings surface? There are for me. Where? Two different states? Okay. Okay. Any other places? Let me give you an example. When I feel it the most, and maybe I'm just strange, and maybe, I don't know if there might anyone here a native Arizonian? You've lived in Arizona all your life? All right, you may not be able to identify with this, but when I'm at the ocean, that is a a coastal region with water that's green, okay? When I'm at the ocean and I'm watching the waves roll in and I'm just there by myself. You ever been there? Have you ever felt your spirit inside of you just lift? Something inside of you just surges. Something arises. It transcends whatever's going on in your life. And you just think, man, there has got to be something more to life. Have you ever been there? Are there other places that have made you feel like that? Mountains? Okay. There are things in nature that lift us above the world we live in and cause us to look beyond. Are there other places besides even nature? Are there other things that make you feel that? A rock concert. All right. Hey, man, let's pull out the stops and just be honest here, right? Can't be honest and transparent in church. Where can you be? I know that's not usually the case, but it should be. Amen? Amen. Yeah. Music. Some of you might not be able to identify with Jared, but have you ever been listening to music, period, and had your spirit lifted and say, man, I want more. I want something more. Any other things that have made you feel like that? Your husband. All right. All right, your husband. Any other things? Yes. Some people call me crazy, but that's when I love them the most. When you look there. No, not because they're... No. (laughs) Yeah, I know what kind of kids you've got. (laughs) No, I'm just kidding. But man, there's something about that... That parent gene, wherever it is inside of me, when I look at one of my daughters and they're sleeping, wow. 
any other places, any other events, friends, anyone ever felt that in church? Once in a while, in a positive way. Have you ever felt it in a negative way at church? Let me explain it this way. Where you're sitting there, you're going through all the motions, you're believing all of the right doctrines, you're following all the right rules, you're sitting there in church, and everything's going along without missing a beat. It's exactly like it's supposed to be. And yet your heart somehow is strangely absent, and you think, man, something's missing. Have you ever been there in a religious context? There has got to be something more to church than this. Have you ever felt that? Let's begin tonight. Let me get a couple of volunteers to pass these out. Thanks, Carl. Thank you. Everyone needs to have one. I've taken the liberty tonight to take the verses that we're going to be looking at, and I've put them on a piece of paper just to save our time. We're going to be looking at a lot of materials. And as we consider these longings for something more, what are they? What is it about humanity that we're never satisfied? Have you ever noticed that? We always want more. What is that? Has anyone ever gotten enough? I mean, think about it. Anybody here ever got to that place where you didn't want more? And it's not just a material thing. I mean, I go all over the planet. Let me do it to you. Is there anyone here tonight that would like a deeper relationship with God? Yeah! It doesn't have to be all material things with anything. We always want more. What is that? Got any ideas? I know this is an Adventist church, but you can talk out loud tonight. And I'll warn you that if you don't, this is going to be a longer sermon than what you're probably used to. God calling you. Yeah, that's a real good, a real good uh, assessment of it. What else? What else is it? Oh, come on now, be creative. What else is it? Some would say it's just the flesh. You know what I'm talking about? It's just the flesh that always wants more. It's never satisfied. And we look at that as a negative thing. It's interesting, if you go with me on your handout, does everyone have one now? The very first verse in Psalm 63, verse 1, King David wrote, My soul does what? Thirsts, and my flesh does what? Have you ever felt your... We've talked about the soul thirst so far tonight. Have you ever f- felt your flesh yearn for something? Anyone ever felt the yearnings of the flesh? Yeah. And we usually think of that in a negative context, correct? But look at what David says. He says, my soul thirsts, my flesh yearns. And then he says, in a dry and weary land where there is... What does he say? No water. What's he saying? I'm thirsty. And it's not a physical thirst. It's a soul thirst. And he's looking out on the horizon of the venue that's offered to him to quench his thirst. And what's he saying? There's nothing there to satisfy me. Have you ever been there? Where you've got this insatiable hunger for something greater. And yet, when you ponder what it is you really want, you can't even put your finger on what it is you want. You just know you want something. Have you ever been there? An indescribable longing. As I look at the culture that I live in today, of North America, there are three things that we are told. If we can just have these three things, our soul thirst, this hunger, will be satisfied. The first one is money. 
And let's be honest tonight, can you? Will you be honest with me? Money. When I just say the word money, do you feel yourself gravitating towards that subject? Anyone here? Do you feel that inside of you? Money. All of a sudden, well, yeah. <clears throat> I mean, if I were to put up a sign out here on the street that said, this weekend, free seminar. Five easy steps to have any material possession you want and live a debt-free life. How many people do you think would have shown up tonight? Yeah, it wouldn't be this group. Well, you'd have been included, I'm sure. But it had been a huge... I mean, there would have been standing room only. Money. We gravitate towards that. The second thing, money. The second thing is power or position. Have you ever noticed everyone in life is trying to move in which direction? Yeah, trying to get to that higher position of power and influence. Because they think if they can just climb the ladder high enough, somewhere at the top they'll be happy. Do you know how many people there are at the top who really aren't happy? That's something to ponder. That's not the subject of tonight. But that's something to ponder. Money, power. What's the third one? The magic three. Money, power, and... Money, power, and... Love. I wish our culture today used that word. What word do they use? You said it, not me, so I'm not getting in trouble for it. I didn't say that word in church yet. No, we're told money, power, and sex. Those three things. And have you noticed the world we live in is racing after those three things? We're infatuated, almost addicted to those three things. Money, power, and sex. Because we think these things will keep us happy. Or make us happy. When you consider the man who wrote this... He said, my soul is thirsty, my flesh is yearning, and I look out at the world and what it has to offer me, and it's a dry and weary land where there's no water. He can't find anything that satisfies it. Now think about these three. Did David have money? Who was he? Yeah. Did he have power and position? Yeah, he was king. Did he have women in his life? He had the magic three, didn't he? And yet he said, my soul is still what? Thirsty. There's nothing. C.S. Lewis. Anyone ever read anything by C.S. Lewis? He's getting a lot of press right now because of certain events. But C.S. Lewis made a remarkable statement. He said, If I find in myself longings for which this world cannot satisfy, he said, The only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. Amen? If there are longings, desires, wishes inside of me for something that I can't find on this planet, that is evidence that there is something beyond that I was made for. That's one of the greatest. This longing for something more, this insatiable desire that is never satisfied within human beings, by anything we encounter on this planet, that is the greatest evidence that there is something else out there. Amen? That there is a God out there drawing all of us to him. And David discovered it. Look at your handouts. Let's read Psalm 63 verse 1 again. But let's fill in the ellipses. It says a psalm of David when he was in the, what does it say? The wilderness of Judah. Oh God, you are my God. I shall seek you earnestly. My soul thirst. And what what are those next two words? For you. He says, my flesh yearns. Here we go. The yearnings of the flesh. What are the next two words? For you. 
We'll talk about that in a minute. That's kind of strange. I've had my flesh yearn for a lot of things. But David said his flesh was yearning for God. And it says, in a dry and weary land where there's no water. In Psalms 145, David said, The eyes of all look to you. And you open your hand and satisfy the desire of every living thing. In the Bible in basic English, the translation is this, By the opening of your hand, every living thing has its desire. In what measure? Full measure. Now, I don't know about you, but when you start talking about money, I'm just going to pick the first one. Don't freak out. We're not going to talk about the third one. But the first one, money, my soul gravitates towards that, just like yours did. But when I say the word God, do you notice the difference of what happens inside of you in response to the word money compared to your response to the word God? Does anyone else want to be honest tonight? Is there a difference in your responses? Did you feel it? Which one, and be honest, which one do we naturally gravitate more towards? Money. That awakens things inside of me. God? Most people, well, God's really what's going to make you happy. What's their response? Yeah. Disbelief. It's almost as if they're saying, I've been there, I've done that. Bought the t-shirt. Not interested. Tried him before. It says the eyes of all, though, look to who? What did it say? The eyes of all look to who? To God. How many eyes? So are the eyes of all right now looking to God? You're going to have to get more responsive with me. Hello? Are the eyes of all right now looking to God? I'm so glad Marilyn's here. Have you ever noticed Marilyn thinks outside the box? Let's read what the Bible says for a second, can we? The I'm going to go slow so you can catch it. The eyes of all look to you. You got it? Now, who said that? Me? David. And it's inspired, recorded in Scripture. So are the eyes of all right now looking to God, according to the Bible? Yes. Do they know it? No. But what are they really hungering for? They think money will satisfy them. They think sex will satisfy them. They think power will satisfy them. And they're looking for something to satisfy. But who are they really looking for? God. They don't know it yet. And when you tell them, it's interesting to me, Satan's slick. He's got us at a place where the things that will leave us more hungry and emptier than what we are now, he's got us duped into thinking those things are the things that are going to make us happy. And this thing that will really satisfy us, oh, that's not going to do anything for you. You notice that? Why is it that we don't gravitate towards God more than we gravitate towards money, power, and sex? G.K. Chesterton. Anyone ever read anything by G.K. Chesterton? G.K. Chesterton made a statement that got him in trouble, but I'm going to quote him tonight because I think the statement's true after what we've looked at tonight so far. He said, Every man who walks into a brothel, you know what I'm talking about, right? If you don't, go home, get a permission slip, or your parents will explain it later. Every man who walks into a brothel, 
he said, is looking for God. Interesting. Now on the surface, it wouldn't appear so, would it? What are they looking for when they go into an institution like that? Not just sex. What are they looking for? They think sex will satisfy it, but what are they looking for? I'm sorry? Love, affection, some type of fulfillment. Who's the only one that can fulfill that void for them? God. We might say they're looking for God in all the wrong places, true. But nonetheless, that's what they're looking for. The greatest human longing, above all else, what is it? We will sacrifice food. We will sacrifice money, shelter, material possessions for this one thing if we can have it. What is the one thing every human being longs for more than anything else? To be loved. Not just be loved, but to be in a relationship where they are loving while simultaneously being loved. Correct? I mean, think about it. Think about marriage for just a second. If there was no love involved with marriage, how many of us would get married? Who in their right mind would choose to spend the rest of their life sitting across the table from Mr. or Mrs. Garlic Breath while three-foot-tall human beings are running around needing their diaper changed? Who would do that? And some say, well, there may be some economic reasons. Whatever money you think you're going to save by living together, one of them, and I'm not going to name which one, We'll spend it. It will cost you more in the long run. And kids. Kids. Anyone got kids? Have you noticed how much kids cost? If you just look at it logically, getting married and having children makes no sense. It doesn't. Why do we do that? People sacrifice better jobs to get married and have kids, don't they? People sacrifice nicer things. Have you sacrificed nicer things to have a functional family? Have you? Have you made sacrifices like that? We sacrifice almost anything to get married and have children. Why? Why? You say, well, I have what it takes. (laughs) Didn't say that. We've all made sacrifices to be married and have kids. Why? Why do we get married? I'm going to keep asking until someone answers. Yes, thank you. Woo! These are not rhetorical questions. (laughs) I like you guys. But if you talk, I'll like you even more. Because somewhere in those relationships, we sense an echo of Eden, don't we? We sense something of what we were made for. We sense that if we can just engage in these relationships, we'll have love. What is love? You will never invite me back to your church again. You're going to say, man, that Herb Montgomery, he just asks way too many questions. I don't like talking. 
<laughs> tough. <laughs> Get used to it. Because for the next 24 hours, I'm going to ask you to talk out loud. What's love? What is it? God. Okay, good. What else? Emotional connection. Good. What else? Someone you can always depend on. Okay, love. What is love? Intimacy. Companionship. And all of these things are an essential quality. Relationship. Interesting. Unselfishness. Sacrifice. Interesting. Unselfishness. Sacrifice. These are the things that make love love, aren't they? Love, by definition, if you look it up, is other-centeredness, isn't it? It's the opposite of self-centeredness. Other-centeredness. Love. Is love something that God made? Did God create love? God has always been, correct? Has God always been love? Then love too has always been, hasn't it? Love didn't come from anywhere. God is love and it's always been that way. And love by definition is what? Other-centeredness. That means it requires, in order for it to exist, it requires at least the existence of how many? One from which it spawns and the other upon which it is centered, correct? Someone said, well, you could, if you were all by yourself, you could love yourself. Love is an interesting thing. Love is, well, everyone raise your right finger with me. Maybe you're better at that. We're not going to sing this little light of mine, but I want you to take this right finger and I want you to take this right finger. Everyone's got to do it. I don't care how reserved or, or mature you want to look right now. Pull out the inner child and raise your little finger and I want you to take that right index finger and place it on the rib of your right side, okay? And just wiggle it for a moment. Don't do it too hard. Don't make it hurt. Just wiggle it, okay? Now, I want you to take this right finger, once again, up in the air, and I want you to take this right finger now and I want you to place it on the rib of the Right side of the person sitting to your left. All right, all right, all right. Okay, quit now. <laughs> Settle down, this is church. <laughs> People say Adventists are stuffy. I don't believe it. Everywhere I go, they tickle each other. <laughs> Was there a difference in the two experiences? Yeah, yeah. Tickling is one of those things which requires more than one for you to experience. Isn't that true? We just tested it. You can't experience tickling if you're all by yourself. Someone said, well, you could love yourself, but let's be honest. If it begins with you and ends with you, call it something else, but don't call it love. Now, I believe in self-respect, amen? I believe in self-worth. Self-esteem or self-value. Whatever you want to call those things. But self-love? 
It's a contradiction of terms. Love, by definition, is something that begins with me and ends in another person. Therefore, it requires another individual besides me to experience it. Isn't that true? Now, if God didn't create love, let's put the pieces together. If love has always been, correct? And love requires the existence of more than one for it to have always been, That means there has always been existence at least more than how many? More than one. The Bible seems to indicate there were how many that have always been in existence? Three. What are their names? Look at 2 Corinthians 13, 14, about three quarters down. It says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of and the fellowship of the How many are named there? Jesus said, go therefore and baptize in the name of the, the, and the. Yeah, In Isaiah 6 verse 8, if you go keep going up, it says, Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for? There's an us up there somewhere, correct? That the Bible indicates, and they are, how many? Now don't get me wrong, the Bible does say the Lord our God is one. But do you know of any other things that are simultaneously two and one or plural and singular at the same time? What other things are there? Family? A husband and a wife? How many are a husband and a wife? And? And one. Well, which one is it? Both. Simultaneous. Well, how do you explain that? What is it that makes two people one in one word? Love. Well, God is how many? Three, and yet they are one. Because of what? Love. If you go back in your imagination before any act of creation took place, you have Father, Son, Holy Ghost, and the Bible defines God not as just a being who loves, but a being who is love. He is the epitome of other-centeredness. And if that is true, then who was the Father living for before any act of creation was done? Who was the Father living for? The Son and the Spirit. Who was the Spirit living for? And who was the... Who's the one I haven't mentioned? Son living for. Thank you. And you have this ebb and flow of the Father reaching out to these two. And then the Holy Spirit reaching out to the other two. And then the Son reaching out to the other two. And you have this this ebb and flow of loving while simultaneously being loved. Does anyone ever hear been loved before? Anyone ever felt love? What's it feel like? Can you describe it? No? Can you try for me? (laughs) Please. Joyful? What other words? Fulfillment? Passionate? You got to speak up. I've got you speaking out loud. Now speak louder. Secure. Good. Encompassing. Yeah. Enveloping. Almost... Yeah, you kind of drown in it sometimes. It's just awesome. Anything else? Precious? What else? Acceptance? What else? Just give me some more adjectives. Happiness? What does it feel like? What is it like to be loved? Freedom? What's it like to love and be loved? Both. Amazing. Comforting, fantastic, ecstatic. 
Wouldn't it be cool if people said hanging out with God and going to church was ecstatic? One of the words that I, I hear a lot is pleasurable. Anyone ever experienced pleasure when they've experienced love before? Has it been a pleasurable experience? Something you really enjoy? Absolutely it is. It's interesting to me that we usually call going to church or studying our Bible or praying and all of these things, we call those Christian disciplines. We don't call them Christian pleasures. We call them Christian disciplines. Do you know what it would be like for me if I looked my wife in the eye and told her that spending time with her was a discipline? And yet we do this to God. Here's the three of them experiencing love. That's what God is. And it's pleasurable. It's ecstatic. All of these words that we've used. And something's interesting about love. I've noticed that love over time does not diminish. As love is continually expressed, love does what? It grows. What else? It deepens, doesn't it? It heightens. It broadens. I have an eight-year-old daughter. And when I'm at home, I, I'm the one she asks to tuck her in at night. And when I tuck her in, I'll give her her glass of water. You ever run the gauntlet putting kids to bed? Read the story. My daughter and I have this prayer journal now. It's the coolest thing. She has got so many answered prayers. She loves it. She just pulls it out every night. And she, she just journals. So she's, she can write and read now. So she just journals her prayers. And it's just amazing to read her little prayer journal. So we'll go through all of that. And then we'll turn out the light. Turn on her nightlight. And I'll just about, just about ready to close the door. Do you have kids at home that, you, that, that are this young? Or that you remember when they were this young. You're just about to close the door. And every time without fail. What do they say? I don't know what it is. but They don't want that door to close. Papa? (laughs) Oh, yes, Allie. And once in a while she'll surprise me. I remember the first time she said this. But she said, Papa? I said, yes, Allie. She said, I love you. More than the angels can love. Man. Anyone have a daughter? I'm sure sons are cool. I've got two girls and I can't think of what would be cooler. But when they say stuff like that, the next morning we were at breakfast and I leaned over to Allie and I said, Allie, what makes you say that? Why do you say that? Did you read that somewhere? Or did you make that up on your own? Did, did mommy teach you that? You know, where'd you get that? She said, no, pop. She said, I made that up all by myself. I said, well, what, what do you mean by that? What do you, what do you say? And she says, well, this is how I figure it. This is the headspace of an eight-year-old. Are you ready? She said, this is how I figure it. I know that I can't love you as much as God does. She says, but I'm pretty sure I love you more than the angels do. That's where she's at. And what's happened between me and my daughter is the more that I've loved her, what has that made her want to do? Have you ever had someone do something nice for you? Anybody here? Yeah. When someone does something nice for you, what does that make you want to do? Something nice for them. You do something nice for them, what's that make them want to do? Something nice for you. What's that now make you want to do? 
Yeah, and all of a sudden you get into a, a nice war. Have you ever noticed that? Have you ever been in one of those? I went on vacation with the family last July or August. July. July 4th. It was the worst vacation of my life. Not because of this family, because it was July 4th. We went to Orlando, Florida and went to Disney World on July 4th. We had to be nuts. We were the stupidest people, dumb as dirt to be there on July 4th. But we thought, you know, if there's any place in the world that's going to have cool fireworks on July 4th, it'd be Disney. So we went. Worst mistake of my life. Almost. Where's my point? Oh yeah, there's my point. The whole time on this vacation was, let me pay. No, let me pay. Let me pay. No, let me pay. Let me pay. Have you ever been in that situation with someone? No, I'll be nice. No, I'll be nice. No, I'll be nice. And you try to out-nice the other one. Well, my daughter, the more I've loved her, the more she's loved me, which makes me in turn want to love her even more, which makes her in turn want to love me even more. With that expression over time, this love has deepened to where she's at a ceiling. The only person she can fathom that would love her dad more than her is God and God alone. Well, that's what happens. Imagine the Godhead, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit. There's continual expression of other-centered, unselfish devotion, affection, love, tenderness, compassion, serving each other. And it just continues. The more one does to the other two, the more the other two want to do to the one. And it just deepens. The pleasure is becoming so intense. Can you imagine it? What it must have been like for the Godhead before creation. The three of them in love. Dare I say it? Is God a lover? Is God sensitive? Does God have the capacity not just to think but to also feel? What were they feeling before creation? I believe it became so intensely pleasurable. This was their thought. Have you ever eaten good food, by the way? Anyone here ever eaten good food? Talking really good food. Really good food. The stuff that makes your taste buds jump up off your tongue and have a party. Good food. The moment you eat that good food, besides getting more, okay? Don't tell me that. People have said that before, too. But besides getting more, what's the first thing you always do? Yeah, you have someone try it. You lean over next. Hey, have you tried this? Oh, this is good stuff. Now, some of you yell out, this stuff is awful. Nobody else try it. I will take care of it all. <laughs> but the majority of you aren't like that. You lean over and say, man, check this out. Don't you do that? This is good. You know, that's been on your plate. I don't care. It's good. Pleasure, when we experience pleasure, our natural impulse is to find someone else to share it with, isn't it? And here's God. Before any type of or act of creation was done, here they are in love. And it's so pleasurable. It's so good. And if you'll forgive me just the vernacular verbiage for just a moment, I believe God said, man, somebody has got to check this stuff out. This love stuff, this is good. And so what did they say in Genesis 1.26? Then God, plural God, said, all three of them, let us make, who? Man, in our 
image, just like us. Let him rule over the fish and the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle. And then it says, And God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and, what's it say? Female, he created them. Why did he create male and female? Why not just male? Don't tell me he had to make a practice run. Why did he create two? Why not just one? He said it's not good for man to be what? Why? Right. Because if he made just man, as much as men love themselves, it would not have been what God intended. And I'm one, so I can say that. It's not what God wanted us to experience. God created interesting These three that are one, this plurality that's at the same time a singularity, he created a microcosm, another plurality that at the same time is a singularity because of one word, what? Love. And he said, here, experience what it's like to be loved. And it wasn't just to be Adam and Eve alone. There was another third party that was to be involved there. Who was it? It was God. Another triune unit. Love. Do you know why it is that every human being longs to love and be loved above all else? Because above all else, this may shock you, but above all else, this is what you were made for. I know it sounds elementary, but I don't care. According to the scripture, it seems to me this is the truth. What is our purpose in life? Why do we exist? Why are we here? It may come as a shock. But God made you for pleasure, not his own, for yours. They were experiencing, I'm not talking about any kind of pleasure. Be careful. God was experiencing such pleasure in this ebb and flow of other-centered love that he created us with the intent of us partaking and experiencing of the same exact pleasure of unselfish love. Do you catch that? Why is it truly better to give than receive? Why? Because that's what we were made for. It truly is. It's not, that's not true. Because Jesus said so. Do you catch that? It's better to give than receive, period. And it's true. And that's why Jesus said so. Love. That's why we're here. Love. Think about that. Process it. Let me ask you another question. Why is it that in church, that seems to be, and I'm not saying your church because I don't know you from Adam or Eve, but why is it in so many churches today that love seems to be the last thing that people experience? That pleasure seems to be the last thing people encounter when they go to church. We're supposed to be people who are introducing people to who? God. And God is what? Love. That's what he made. People should come to church and not find something they have to endure, but rather they should come to church and find, wow, this resonates with me. This is touching on deep inner desires and wishes. This is where I could find fulfillment. Isn't that what people should feel at church? 
and not just church. I believe with all my heart if people could just come to see God for what he's like. Every desire they have in their heart. Do you remember what the psalm said? Every desire is met. In what measure? Do you remember? Full measure. If we could just see God, and this is this hints on it, if we could just see God for what he's really like, I believe that every single one of us, our hearts would gravitate towards that. There would be resonance inside of us. Something inside of us would say, wow, this is what I've always wanted. This is what I've always been looking for. This is what I've dreamed of. And I don't know about you, but I've not always encountered that in religious contexts. Why? Let me tell you a little bit of my story, and I'm not going to spend long on it. If you want a more detailed, comical version, get the tapes from last year's camp meeting. But just for tonight, in brevity, when I was four years old, my parents became divorced. I grew up with a single mom, and she was a loving mom. She was a good mom. Anyone here have a good mom? She was the mom above all moms. She still is. But she was wounded by my father when they became divorced. See, he ran off with another woman. And I remember growing up, as close as I was to my mother, I remember growing up hearing this all the time, that he had abandoned us for this other woman. And he was this bad man, this dangerous man that I needed to be careful of. I remember, I remember overhearing conversations about how he would refuse to pay child support. And what backed up all of these things that I heard was I lived in a town, and those of you who are from Phoenix, you might not understand this, but I grew up in a town that was only 5,000 people large, okay? It was just small. And the streets in that town were not very long, not like here. Some of you guys, I learned today that, that your roads here, it's, it's such a grid that your roads are, are, you can tell how many miles you've gone just by how many blocks you've gone. It's per mile. It wasn't like that. If you got a mile out of any of our roads, you were doing good. None of our roads were a mile long. And I grew up at the end of one, uh, one street. It was Fraser Street. I grew up, I was the last house on the left. Do you want to guess who lived at the first house on that same street on the left? Left-hand side of the street? Take a guess. Talk out loud. My dad. Yeah, that's how close I grew up to my dad. And I can remember birthdays coming and going. And not so much as even a birthday card to say, Happy birthday, son, thinking of you. Nothing at Christmas. Nothing at Easter. No contact. So this reinforced all these things I was hearing from my mom. And when I was 14, I decided I'm going to go meet my dad. I'm going to go get to know him. And you have to understand, this wasn't like I wanted to. Have you ever had something that you didn't really want to do? But you felt like you should, so you did it anyways. Anybody ever been there? Hopefully tonight is not one of those events for you. <laughs> so I went to go visit my dad, and I remember standing in his kitchen. And his, mom, his wife, my stepmom, looked at me. And she said, Herb, you know your father really loves you and wishes you would visit more often. And I remember, I was raised by a single mom who taught me when to keep my mouth shut and when to open it. And I knew that that was the time to keep it shut. But I remember thinking inside, love? Man, what dad needs for his birthday is a Webster's Dictionary. I could define for him what love is. This has not been it. Dad didn't even know what love's about. Poor guy. But I continued to visit. Not because I wanted to once again, but because something inside of me was driving me to try to have a relationship with my dad. 
never clicked. When I was 16, I met the most beautiful woman of my dreams. It was, it was the most life-changing event. Beyond getting a car, giving my heart to Jesus changed my life too. But meeting this girl radically set the course for the rest of my life. And I knew from the first moment I saw her, I knew this is the woman that I am going to marry. And what's ironic, some of you say, well, you're 16. How did you know that? 16-year-olds don't know much. They do. At least I did. And what was ironic, she was 15. And from the first time she saw me, she knew the exact same thing. That I wanted to marry her, that is. (laughs) And so she kept me at arm's distance. Until we were about 18. Then we became friends. Then 19, things began to get serious. And I dropped out of college. And she was trying to go to school. And she successfully did it. Which, my hat's off to her. I think school is a great thing. I think everybody should go to school. I didn't. But I was trying at that time. And I dropped out. And I thought, you know, we're 19. I'm 19. She's 18. She's in school. She's almost done. Because she didn't go through a big... She went through a two-year program. And I, and I thought, she's almost done. And... Uh, you know, if I'm not going to go to school and I've got a job in America, what's the next thing to do? Get married and have kids. It's just the natural progression, right? And so I thought, I'm going to ask her to marry me. And so at age 19, I invite, we were out in California, and I invited her to Monterey Bay one weekend. We had friends there. Anyone ever been to Monterey Bay? You know Lover's Point right there? You know what I'm talking about? I invited her to Lover's Point on a Friday evening. And the sun was setting on the ocean. It's her favorite place. And the stars were beginning to come out. And the orchestra at one of the restaurants was out on the deck playing. Stringed music. It was so romantic. We don't have time to go into all the romantic details. But I went down on one knee and I was about to ask her to marry me. And I dawned on my wife what was going on at that moment. She hadn't really clued into it until right there. And as soon as I went down on one knee, she stuck out her hand. And she said, don't even think of asking me to marry you. And all hope inside of me died. And then she said one word that I will be eternally thankful for. She said, until. Until. Hope revived. Until when? Tell me when. What? What's the condition? She said, until you first have a relationship with your father, because I'm not going to marry anyone who has a dysfunctional relationship with either one of their parents. I thought, dude, not only is she beautiful, she's smart. (laughs) And so talk about visits of a compulsory nature to my father's house. And I'm going to be honest, I never got it to the place where I really had a relationship with my dad. I did get it to a place where my wife was deceived enough to say I do. We got married when we were both 20. When I was 23, we were sitting in the living room. And my, my wife has a tendency to pry sometimes. And she caught my dad at a very vulnerable moment that she had set up. And she looked him straight in the eye. We were sitting in his living room. Me, us on one couch. We, us, we. There's two classes I failed in school. Grammar and public speaking. So you'll have to put up with me this weekend. I don't know why God called me to this. But we're going to get through it, all right? But we were sitting on one couch. 
And my father was sitting on the other and she looked him straight in the eye. And she said, so, why didn't you visit your son more often when he was a little kid? Now imagine, put yourself in my shoes for a second. I'm in the room. Hello? I'm sitting right here. (laughs) Didn't want to be at that point. But he looked at me and he looked at her and he looked at me and he didn't know what to say. And he looked at me and he said, Herb, I know you love your mother very much. He said, but at age 23, I think you're old enough to know something. And I braced myself for it because I thought, you know, what is he going to tell me? that? I mean, I've got the evidence. He said, when I left your mother, he said, I never in my wildest dreams imagined that I'd be losing you told me of a very lengthy and heated custody battle where my mom was so tenacious that she had the judge that was presiding over the court case debarred from ever practicing law in the state of West Virginia again because of the way the ruling was leaning. She was just tenacious. He told me how that ended very regrettably for him and how he lost custody of me and full custody was awarded to her. And then he told me, he said, there's something else you've got to see. And I stood up and I followed him into his dining room. And he opened up this drawer. And in this drawer was a box. He lifted off the lid of this box. Anyone want to guess what was in the box? In this box was every child support check ever written. They had been processed through my mother's bank account and returned with my father's monthly bank statement. Remember when they used to give your checks back to you? And later that evening, I went through them. I didn't look at the date they were written. I looked at the date on the back when they were processed. And never was one late. Never was one missing until my 18th birthday. He had faithfully supported me. And then tears. And my father never cries. I've never seen him cry up to this point. I've never seen him cry since. But my father looked me in the eye and tears began to stream down his cheeks. As he told me of birthday presents that were thrown away by my mother. Or packages that came back in the mail with nothing on them but return to sender. Now in my mother's defense, let me quickly add, who was she mad at? Who was she trying to hurt? After all, he'd run off with another woman. I think he deserves a little discomfort, right? Maybe. Who knows? But back then, they were learning how divorce works. Today, they've written textbooks on it. Her intent was to hurt him, not me. She didn't realize she was hurting me. I still love my mother. I don't hold this against her. But in that one moment, as I looked into my father's eyes, and I saw something there that I'd never seen, I saw through all the years and all the heartache and all the times that he tried that I never knew about, And what had been faded into what would be. And for the first time in my life, I felt something in my heart. Something resonated. Something surfaced. Something took place. I was feeling things that I had never felt before. For the first time in my life, I loved my dad. And the relationship that I tried so hard to have with him just clicked in the blink of an eye. And I ask you tonight, what made the difference? With this in mind, 
I want you to take your handouts with me. You know what I'm going to do? There. I'm right-handed. Do you notice that? I keep trying to... There. With this in mind, with this story, the lens of this story there to look through, I want us to read for a second. Genesis 3. Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, as God said, you shall not eat from any tree of the garden. The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may freely eat, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said you shall not eat it nor touch it lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, What? What was the serpent here implying that God had done? Why? Look through the lens of the story I just told you about my own life. What was the serpent here doing? He wasn't lying about a piece of fruit. He was accusing God of not holding their best interest at heart, but as living for only who? Himself. He was maligning or trying to distort their perception or their picture of what God was like. Was he not? Look what he says next, if you don't believe me, in verse 5. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be what? And you will be what? Like God, knowing good and evil. Now think about this. God knows you'll be just like him, Eve. And God wants that all for who? Therefore, he's lied to you to keep you from it. Now compare that to what we learned earlier tonight. How had God made them? How, though? He said, let us make man in our... Weren't they already, in a sense, like God? He made them like him. They made them like them. You follow that? For the exact purpose of them experiencing exactly what they were experiencing. And Satan comes along and begins to mess with Eve's perceptions of what type of a person God is. And wouldn't it have been great if Eve would have just said, well, that's not true. Wouldn't it have been cool if Eve could have saw through the lies and never eaten the fruit or never taken it to Adam and Adam would have never eaten it. But you know what? It wasn't really about the fruit, was it? What was really going on there? Talk to me. What made the difference between Myself and my father. What made the difference? What was the trust? What, made, what, what, was, what was causing the problem? Why could I never engage with him in a meaningful, fulfilling relationship up to that point? I had the wrong picture of the person I was trying to have a relationship with. Would you agree? For some reason, if we have the wrong perception of what a person's like, we don't have the fulfilling relationship that we desire to have with them. Isn't that true? What was Satan doing in Genesis 3? Not trying to get them to eat a piece of fruit. What was he doing? Distorting their perception of God so that, yes, they would eat the fruit, but they would separate from him. They would view him differently than what he truly is. They would become deceived over what type of a person God is. And this fulfillment, this love that they were made for, the prerequisite for love is other-centeredness, correct? Thinking that God is self-centered, who did they become focused on out of necessity, just out of self-preservation? If God is out for only himself, then I had better start looking out for who? Who? 
And they became self-centered. Selfishness took the place of love. And this whole plan that God had in creating Adam and Eve and the human race and having them experience this love that they had been experiencing, all of this just shattered. Because they believed a lie about what type of a person God is. What is it that prevents us today from experiencing the fulfillment that we long to? Let's be honest. All of us here tonight have said we long for something deeper with God. Amen? All of us have said we've had times in church before where we felt there's got to be more than this. Why is it that money is more attractive to us than even the mere mention of God? Why is that? Could it be that we have the wrong picture of what our heavenly dad is like? Could it be? And that if we could just see the truth about what he's really like, if we could just get the right picture of this person we're trying to have a relationship with, the fulfilling relationship that we long for would just fall into place. Could it be? The fulfillment that we long for in a religious encounter with God the meaning and the purpose that we long for in life. Could it be that the reason all of those things are lacking in so many of our experiences is because deep-rooted inside every single one of our hearts, we have misconceptions and wrong pictures of what God is really like? Could it be? Don't get me wrong. We know which day to go to church on. We've got that one nailed. We know what to eat and what not to eat. Got it. But you know what blows me away? Do you know what the purpose of our church is? Do you know what the mission of our church is? We have been called to give the last warning message to a dying world. You know what that is by definition, and I'm quoting. Do you know what it is? A revelation of which day to go to church on. Is that what the definition of the last warning message is? Revelation of what to eat and what not to eat. Is that what it is? What's the last warning message? Revelation of his character of love. That's what it is. We've got these other things. But you know what scares me? As I talk to not just Adventists, but Christians and people in the world, we have got some sick pictures of what God is like, don't we? Think about it. And I'm not talking about them. I'm talking about every single one of us here tonight. We have wrong pictures. How do I know? Would you like more fulfillment? Do you ever find yourself longing for greater fulfillment in your relationship with God? Yeah. Yeah. What is it that keeps us? Have you ever struggled to have a relationship with God where the harder you tried, the harder it was? Have you ever been there? Where the more you put in, the more frustration you got back? It was like that proverbial carrot that always hung right beyond your fingertips. You just couldn't quite get it. Have you ever been there with God? Why? For the same reason that I tried so many years to have a relationship that was meaningful with my real dad, my, my earthly dad, my biological father. For the same reason I tried so many years to have a relationship with him and it didn't work. is because we today have the wrong picture of the dad we're trying to have a relationship with. And so we come to church. And dare I say it, can I just be honest? Many times we come to church more out of willpower 
than out of desire or out of cultural pressure than a real desire to want to come to church. I'm just being honest. Maybe I'm the only one that's ever been in that boat. But if you're woke up Sabbath morning, say, well, I don't really want to go to church today, but I should. Has anyone ever been there? I'm not saying you're there on a continual basis, but we'd be honest enough to say you've been there. Wouldn't it be nice if we could see God for what he's really like? Our hearts could resonate with him. The fulfillment, the love that he made us for. Wouldn't it be cool if we forgot about all the Christian disciplines and we just started basking in all the Christian pleasures? Wouldn't that be cool? Where it's ecstatic pleasure to do God things because we see him for what he's like and we can't help but gravitate towards those things. That's where we find the most fulfillment. Wouldn't that be nice? Why is it that we don't right now? It's not because you're not trying hard enough or you're eating the wrong thing or you're not disciplined enough or you're not studying as much as you should. All of those things are symptoms. It's the, the cause, the root, is because we have misperceptions of the type of person God is. Let me close tonight. You can finish this handout on your own sometime. But I believe Jesus came here for the direct purpose of showing us the truth about God. Amen? That was his purpose in coming to planet Earth. To turn the tide back from the direction Satan had set it in. To put us back on course to experience the love that we were made for. Amen? Through revealing to us the truth rather than all the lies that we've believed. I also believe that in every person's heart we have a hunch of what God should be like, don't we? We have a sense of what He should be like. I was invited to the University of Washington once to do a seminar they invited me and they said, would you come and talk to our young people here? We have a, a group that's, that's put your name in and they'd like you to come and speak. I said, sure. What would you like me to come and speak on? Because colleges scare me. They said, oh, we'd like you to come and speak about God. I thought, cool, that's a blank check. God. That's an easy subject. And so, that's right. <clears throat> and so I showed up and found out they had stuck me in the science lecture hall. I thought, God in the science lecture hall. That's interesting. But I went there, and, and they had three lecture halls there, and I said, hmm, I wonder what else is going on at the same time. So I walked over to the first lecture hall on the left, and it had, uh, on my left, and it had a uh, big, you know, one of those, what do you call them? Well, whatever they are, they've got the little letters inside that spell words that describe what's going on inside the... And it said, Dr. So-and-so, PhD, FSD, whatever. All these letters and numbers and who knows what they were. I don't even know what they stand for. But here was this doctor and, and, and then he said, it said, the science of evolution. I thought, okay. I mean, everyone's entitled to their beliefs. So I walked over to the other one. And it had another name. And if someone is, if someone does have all those letters, my hat's off to you. It takes a lot to get them all. I'm not making, I'm not making a joke. That was not meant to be funny. But I'm serious. My hat's off to you. 
I don't have all those letters. But here was another name with all these letters. And it said, atheism in a modern age. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. I wonder what they said about me. And so I went to the middle thing. And it was just real simple. No, no numerous letters, dots, periods. <laughs> it just said, Herb Montgomery, God. <laughs> I said, that's cool. <laughs> that's better than PhD. <laughs> Can I take a picture of that and take it home to my kids? If I could just convince them. <laughs> so I went in and I was early and I walked into the, the, the lecture hall and I had one of these nice little handouts. And all of a sudden the students started to come in and fill up the, the lecture hall. and I started looking at them. And I had committed the fatal flaw of every, it's the most dreaded fear of every public speaker. I had failed to take into account the audience, take into account correctly the audience I was going to be speaking to. And I watched them come in and I started to just see where they were at and what they were like. It dawned on me. Herb, hello. These are, these are secular college university students. And you're going to give them this? I mean, look at yours for a second. It's just a list of what? They don't look at the Bible the same way you do, Herb. Everything you're about to tell them is based on something they don't even know is even valid for evidence. And so I took my hand out and I just watered it up and I threw it away. And I said, okay, God, what are we going to talk about this afternoon? And I started to sweat in places I didn't even know I had. I was so scared and nervous. And they came in. And I give all credit for this to God because this wasn't me at that moment. I was truly uptight, to say the least. But he said, just level with them. And so I said, okay. Let's just be honest for a second. Let's say, actually, let's not be honest. Let let me just give in. Let me just surrender. I'll let you win. Let's say you're right. Let's say there is no God. We're all there is. There's nothing else out there. And you're correct on that. But, let's say that we were invited here this afternoon, all of us, as the intellectual elite of the planet, for the purpose of creating a God to rule the universe. Sure, one doesn't exist, but let's make one. And I said, if we were to create a God to rule the universe, what would you want him to be like? And I will admit, they were much like you. They had trouble talking at first. But as one person started, the next one came, then it just loosened up and they started to talk a little bit more than you do. Hopefully you can improve by tomorrow, okay? I have hope. There you go, all right. (laughs) I said, what would you want him to be like? 
And they, they began to throw out these adjectives. And, I, and it dawned on me, Herb, start writing this stuff down. So I grabbed one of these, these dry erase markers and I got the little thing and I started writing on, you know how big those whiteboards are in, in a science lecture hall? In a half an hour, we had filled up the entire whiteboard with adjectives about what they would want God to be like. And you would be blown away by some of the things they said. It was the non-religious, creative, free-thinking, without any culturally conditioned boundaries, just, just fresh from their heart. What they would, not what they were supposed to say, but what they wanted to say. Just this fresh description of what they would want a God who ruled the universe to be like. And I sat there at the end of half an hour writing all that, and I just began to look at it. And as I looked at each one of those words, it dawned on me. And the Lord began to bring verses to my mind. And for the next hour, it was the greatest moment of my preaching career. It was the most fulfilling thing I have ever done. I took these secular university students and their description of what God, they would want God to be like. And we took every word and we flipped from verse to verse and I showed them this. It may not be what religion has presented to you. It may not be the God that Christianity has shown you. But what you want, what you have just put on the board, what your heart desires, this is the God that the Bible is offering you. And I was amazed that what every human really wants is exactly what God is. And the reason we have an aversion to Him sometimes is not because there's something wrong with Him but there's something wrong with the way we see him. And so I invite you, this weekend, for the next three times we're going to be together, would you like to see something different about God? Would you like to go deeper with him? I'm not saying you're not Christians and you don't have relationships with him. I know that. But how many of you would like something more? Would you like to see maybe some areas where you have, might have some misconceptions? I don't want to offend anybody, so I'm walking real lightly here. Can I just be honest? You and I are so messed up. You and I are so dysfunctional. I, I have traveled around all over this planet. And there are some wild and zany pictures we have of God. Would you like to see, discover some misperceptions that maybe you have about God this weekend? Have those corrected for the purpose of not being right. No. It's not about intellectual correctness. But so that we can be liberated from the lies that are in our hearts about God to experience the fulfillment and the joy, the pleasure and the love that we were made for. How many would like to go deeper into that experience? Jesus came to restore us to that. It's my hope. Please invite as many as you can. Tomorrow morning, both times tomorrow morning, we're going to be doing a part one and part two on the cross. Come to, There is no greater revelation. You say, well, I've heard that before. No, you haven't. Come tomorrow morning. I know you have. But don't ever say that. Don't say, well, I've ever, you know. The minute you say that, you cut yourself off. Let's look deeper. We're going to be looking at the cross, I believe, in a way that many of us have not looked at it.
tomorrow morning. First session and second session. Come for both. And then tomorrow afternoon, we're going to be looking at a subject. Tomorrow at four, we're looking at a subject which I think prevents more people from really experiencing God's love than any other subject. And the title is, If God Loves Me the Way He Says He Does, Then Why Did He Allow This to Happen to Me? Have you ever been there? Have you ever wrestled with that? Do you know people that have wrestled with that? These are the areas we have misperceptions of God about that whether we know it or not, subconsciously are preventing our heart from engaging with Him in the meaningful relationship that He longs for with us. And so I invite you, come tomorrow. This is going to be more than just entertainment. This is going to be Bible study. We're going to be looking. But it's going to be more than just intellectual Bible study. My prayer is that as we see these new things about God, these deeper things about God, that our hearts will be touched and that our hearts would be drawn into a more intimate experience with Him than we have yet heretofore experienced. Wouldn't that be nice? Let's pray for that. And precious Heavenly Father, Lord, tonight as we close, first I want to thank you for the opportunity of being here this evening.